Welcome back. I want to take a quick second to tell you about our sponsor of today's episode of North American Deer Talk, CNE Wildlife Products. CNE Wildlife is a trusted leader in biotechnology for the cervid industry. They offer microencapsulated bacteria products that are research supported through Texas Tech University. With more than 30 years of experience and commitment to all natural probiotics, this product line continues to be a mainstay in herd management programs across North America. And the reason is simple. They are passionate about the cervid industry. They have products for elk, whitetail, muleys, red deer, and more. With products ranging from Fawn Paste and Electromax to Guardian Plus, Whitetail Energy Pack, Jumpstart, or their ever-popular Top Score Extreme, they just flat out work. We've been a CNE Wildlife product user for more than 15 years. To learn more about CNE Wildlife, check out episode 54 of North American Deer Talk, a probiotics masterclass with CNE owner Sadie Horrocks, and give her a call today to start using the products we do here. Hey, it's the Deer Wizard, host of North American Deer Talk. I want to tell you about a great new advertising and research platform that we've developed for you, CWDbreeding.com. You know, as the deer industry continues to mature and develop around chronic wasting disease and its known genetic heritability, resources like CWDbreeding.com become essential tools for deer managers across the country making decisions about their herds. I really wanted a platform that excelled at hosting GEBV and codon markers in a filterable and searchable manner, but I also wanted to have high quality pictures, videos, ages, scores, NADAR numbers, and a whole host of other information to go along with that. This database puts everything in one easy to find location and allows you to access the industry's greatest genetic resources. I look forward to seeing all the great bucks that people have to offer in one easy-to-find location, cwdbreeding.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. This is episode 75. I have a special guest in studio, remotely, obviously, uh, Mr. Travis Lowe, the executive director of NEBA. I'm, I'm practicing saying NEBA because I've been saying it wrong for all these years, and Travis corrected me. Uh, Travis, how are you? All right, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I appreciate you uh, taking some time to to chat some elk with me today. Um, as you know, I am a, a whitetail guy, but I am a servant enthusiast at heart. I love hunting elk. Uh, I think they're fascinating animals, and I know that's your wheelhouse. So I'm excited for this conversation today, and thank you again for coming on. So give me the give me the high level view of what elk ranching is in North America. Yeah, no, well, thank you, Josh, and just appreciate the opportunity to, to share a few thoughts about the elk industry. It is something that uh, a lot of people are passionate about uh, across the continent, and it is, as you said, something near and dear to the mission of the North American Elk Breeders Association. So uh, big picture view, the elk industry came into common practice in leasing the United States and Canada in the late 1970s, but predominantly became emerging in the 1980s, and then by the early 1990s, the industry was off and running, and we might even say the heyday of the elk industry was in the late 90s prior to the mainstream discussions about chronic wasting disease. It's a very popular 
pursuit just because of the ability to to own a majestic animal and have out on your property. And it just seems like we see a lot of crossover from folks that grew up maybe vacationing in Colorado where they're just big elk hunters or deer hunters at heart. And there's just something about the sound of a bugle in the fall that thinks, hey, you know, how can I make this work? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, when you look at when you look at um, you know kind of the history, uh, and you work through those those decades, I suspect it's much like uh, any kind of other alternative, if you want to call it alternative livestock industry, where you you have these like kind of trailblazers that are like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna raise some elk, and and as things go on, uh, that process evolves. It becomes more uh, professional. It becomes more. There's more education. Of course we'll get into the regulatory stuff in a, in a bit. Cause with, with any type of business, you know, the government uh, tends to follow along with that. What, like, what are the main markets for, uh, for elk? Cause I know they're a little different from some of the other species. Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. So the elk industry, just like the white-tailed deer industry uh, has a great, you know, hunting trophy market. And it's where we see a lot of ranches use it as their end market. And they have phenomenal trophy preserves across the United States that offer multi-day hunts, beautiful lodges, great terrain, whether it's in the South, Midwest, or Mountain West part of the United States. Just a great opportunity to absorb that, that atmosphere and hear the bugles and, and try to find that big bull. Um, but, you know, that's just part of it. The elk industry has a great uh, market with secondary markets, the meat industry as a primary example, which a lot of people, if you ask them on the street, would recognize. And that's really where the elk industry for a lot of years, particularly in the 1990s, has always shared a lot in common with the bison industry. Hmm. And in fact, if you look at the older issues of the North American uh, Elk Breeders Association journal magazines, you'll see a lot of references to collaboration with the National Bison Association. A lot of our member ranches had bison as well. It's that alternative meat product that a lot of people find fascinating. Now, the elephant in the room, elk simply aren't the size of a you know, of cattle or bison where you have that type of carcass weight to really make it worthwhile. So you know, a lot of people wouldn't look at the elk industry to say the meat industry is a primary reason to get involved, but it's certainly an opportunity to have a secondary market. It's a great way to manage coals and herd size. And for the people that like to engage in those types of specialty meats or that are becoming more mainstream meats, we believe the elk is a great way to take a look. Yeah, I uh, I think elk is delicious, and I I try to eat it as much as I can. Um, it's not well. I have a I have a regular supply of of elk meat, so like I can eat it whenever I want. But I I, I make a conscious effort to do so, uh, even though I'm a, a big fan of of beef. Um, I don't yeah. I don't know many people that are don't love a good ribeye, but elk elk is excellent. Um, now I I understand that. And and I'm not. You, I'm sure you can fill me in on on the timeline. But like, we obviously there's antlers are are the fascination of of everybody, right? But there's a there's a market for antlers, whether that be maybe craft or or collectors, etc. There's also a velvet market too. Can you touch on that? Yeah. So you know, Josh is kind of. I, I started talking about secondary markets and. The elk antlers provide enormous opportunities. So the meat industry, it's an in market. You know, at the end of the day, it's a terminal path. 
you, know, you can only utilize that once per animal for obvious reasons. When it comes to the elk industry, the elk antlers, it's a great renewable market. And that can be in the velvet antler or it can be in the hard antler. We've seen both industries develop and evolve over the years. But to your question, we'll talk about the velvet industry first. And, and that, again, is something that was very, very well developed in the 1990s. We saw enormous opportunity for the velvet antler industry in the United States and Canada until some of the changes with the international trade rules. Carnic wasting disease, of course, had a big factor in that. But the ability to harvest elk antlers uh, humanely, of course, and utilize that, capitalize that into, into different types of medicine to provide uh, relief or arthritis, things of that nature. It's something that's been going on around the world and certainly predates Americans and Canadians getting involved in the elk industry. But it's been around. And there's been a good local development for that demand. And so a lot of our producers either, either sell them to, uh, to different collectors that purchase velvet antler for that end market, but now we're to the point where a lot of our members across the United States and Canada are actually processing that themselves. They're capsulizing those pills and they're actually selling them to the public at large. And so it's a very good opportunity for them to make more money. They put more work into a course. There's marketing business they have to take care of, but provides them a little bit more value to that. But again, elk antlers, a lot bigger than what you'd see on a, on a whitetail buck, of course. So provides a lot of opportunity, a lot more antler, a lot more bone. They grow back each year and it's just a good good opportunity. And that's just a velvet antler. We didn't just begin talking about the hard antler opportunities just yet. Yeah, I, uh, I did a um, I did a show maybe a year or two ago, and I called it the function stack. And I just looked at all the opportunities within a particular species to try to capitalize the most amount of income from an animal. And it's so interesting that you have a, a renewable resource within an animal to be used as income to offset your expenses. Um, it's just incredible. And, and my understanding, and, and I started to look into this a little bit more um, a few years ago, was that these th this particular product, this, this elk velvet, um, has tremendous uh, health benefits. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, it's been it's been used, I think, for, you know, I, I read anyway, thousands of years in in um, you know, the eastern part of the world or over in Asia. And uh, we're starting to see more and more of that as people, um, as information becomes available in in the citizenry, that health becomes more and more of a topic, and obviously that that fits an incredible, um, an incredible you know niche market, but it's it has broader context too. Tell us about the the hard antler side. Yeah, and to on the velvet point there, Josh, it. it it's even developed now into, you know, we have dogs that are, you know, the parent, pet owners give those to their dogs for, you know, hips and arthritis issues for, for the older dog, the older golden retrievers, whatever that looks like. So it is becoming more popular. It, it's, it's not as mainstream here in the United States or Canada. It's certainly what we see on other parts of the world, but it is an opportunity. It is there. When it comes to hard antler, though, it's it's probably becoming even more popular to the elk in, industry today, just because it's probably easier, for lack of a better term. When the elk antlers, they grow, they start about this time of year. Uh, the older bulls start first, uh, but in the next 30 days here, spring to, to mid-spring, every elk bull will be growing some type of antler set, big or small. And as that velvet comes off in April or in August and the rut season sets in, they'll drop that hard antler set. 
And whether they draw naturally or they're removed in hard antler after it's calcified, there's a, an enormous opportunity for the hard antler market in the emerging dog shoe industry. And so we've come from a time where we have people that don't pay any attention at all to the elk industry, to deer industry, and that's okay. But they are now going to pet stores purchasing antler for their puppies, for their dogs. And that is just an incredible opportunity to see a mainstream demand for our antler products, which again, grow every year. And when you're looking at an elk antler set, even if it's 330 inches, we're up to close to 500, there's a lot of opportunities to cut you know, a piece of antler about that big and enter that into the market stream. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and it just goes to show the value of, of these animals and the diversity of opportunity that they can provide. Um, that's, that's tremendous. Um, I'd like to kind of just shift gears a little bit into um, NEBA, its role within the elk industry, you know, kind of as a, a leading voice and advocacy group. Can you can you give us the little bit more history on, on NEBA itself? And we'll we'll shift away from the, the, the farming and structured end of things into uh, yeah, uh, an organizational view. Happy to. So the North American Elk Breeders Association is the trade association for elk ranches across the United States, Canada, and Mexico. So our members are the ranches. We're a trade association. And again, we specialize in one species, and that's elk. Formed in 1990 by a group of people from across the continent, all came together and started an organization. And by at this time, Josh, the industry was already really getting its stride. There's a lot of great opportunity. There were great auctions and sales. There were already several state associations uh, in the United States and Canada that had had it formed for local communities. But NEBA became this international uh, continental community of elk ranchers. And, and it remains true today. The association may look a little different as time evolves. The cast of characters on the board changes. The people that are at the banquets and antler competitions changes. But ultimately, we still have that spirit of an elk community at our events. Uh, we're fortunate to have two different events a year. We have our international antler competition. Uh, in summer, it's usually end of July or early August. It's a great opportunity to see anywhere between four to eight or nine dozen of antler sets all come for some of the best bulls in the country. We have a very sophisticated measuring class system where we have animals, different divisions, typical antler, non-typical antler, age group. It's really cool to see the antler sets there side by side, all blind measuring. And then it's just a great feature of our event. So a lot of educational seminars take place. And then we have one of those uh, that take place at our winter spring meeting as well, intentionally moving our, our events around, around the uh, continental map to expose our uh, give the ability to give exposure to the association services to all parts of our membership map. We recognize that if you're sitting in the central part of the United States, I'm sitting in Kansas City, relatively in the central part of the United States, but we have members that are in Idaho, we have members that are in North Carolina, we have members that are in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Quebec, and so we need to have events that can get at least somewhat closer to them, give them an opportunity to get somewhere within a day's drive. Gotcha. Um, so I guess on that point, how do you, like, obviously, uh, geography separates a lot of these, um, a lot of these farms, right? And you have, you have people with diverse needs. Um, how, how do you address those kinds of things? Cause like the guy in, you know, Alberta is going to be much different from the guy in Texas. 
So how does yeah. that, how does that work? Or, or maybe what's yeah, a really good point? You know what's interesting, Josh, is that some people make a good. Some people want to do this full time or it's a primary focus. Maybe they're retired early and now it's kind of what they do, primary. Other folks do it secondary. Other folks do it as a hobby because they love the animals. But generally, what unites all those people, uh, the common element is the passion for the industry. Mm-hmm. But like you just said, you're if you're an elk rancher in Alberta, your needs, your questions may be different from if you're an elk rancher in Texas. And we certainly see the diversity between the conversations. Uh, first of all, you have two different federal governments in that example, and that puts a, an interesting spin on things. But, you know, people in the South, were dealing more, what's the what's the effect of antler fescue or antler fescue on elk antlers? Uh, how does that impact growth where, you know, we don't see those conversations as much from some of our northern members. But in general, we have a great collection of information from all the different experiences that's been collected. You made a reference earlier to the trailblazers. And that is very paramount to how NEBA was founded on the principle that we want to develop and enhance the elk industry and share that information. You know, sitting here in 2023, we're sad to say we've seen a lot of our industry trailblazers pass away or retire. Mm-hmm. And so we are being very intentional at NEBA to create uh, opportunities to continue to pass on that experience that is hard earned by our regional members and allow our newer breeders, the opportunity to learn from their successes, learn from their mistakes. Without exaggeration, we have articles in our magazine that goes out called Learn From My Mistakes. You know, you take a person that's been raising elk for 20, 30 years, and everybody has a story about, you know, I really wish I'd done this different, or, you know, it took me 10 years to figure out I should have bought this shoot, or I should have started AIing this way. Well, how can we not let these new people learn from that mistake or from 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 that experience? Yeah. So we really enjoy that. We have a an elk farming handbook that is a couple hundred pages, lots of information. We just came out with a revised edition, again, co-authored by a lot of people with decades of experience. We're just really excited to see this move into the next generation. And we're proud to say that we're a growing organization. Our membership isn't what it was today compared to 1990. But it certainly is bigger than it was uh, four or five years ago or holding steady. So and that's a product of we're seeing more people get into the industry that are interested in it. And that's really encouraging to see. Some of those are second, third generation folks that, you know, the trailblazer passed the baton to the next generation. And they grew up with that experience. and They want to continue all the good work, all the genetic uh, advancement they've worked on their ranch. And then we see a lot of other people just diversifying from other species. We do see quite a few people that have white-tailed deer or other exotic species want to add some elk as well. You know, if you have eight-foot fence, you have eight-foot fence. There are only so many animals you might want for that. So, you know, elk are a very hardy animal, low mortality, uh, a lot of good opportunities, uh, generally low resistance to chronic waste and disease or, or low susceptibility. And so we're seeing a lot of interest right now. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I I like to, you know, when you when you hear uh, people talk about uh, generational farmers, um, I, I think at least here in the States, people think cattle, um, you know, the, well, my, my dad had a ranch and, you know, we just, we always, we always worked on the ranch and it's like, well, you worked on a cattle ranch, right? And to, to, it's, it's encouraging for me as a first generation farmer um, that, you know, that, there is pass down, right? And that maybe I have an opportunity um, to convince my kids that this is a life that is worth living, right? And and it's good to 
it's good to know that 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 is happening. Um, I I call it uh, at least not losing the experience from generation to generation, um, some sort of tribal knowledge, right? And and when you think about uh, when you think about that and how important that is um, to not make those mistakes and to to continue to mature an industry for long-term viability. It's just encouraging for me to hear that. So I'm, I'm glad that that is taking place. Um, do you think, do you think that uh, there's, there's folks, I'm sure you've seen some folks that, especially uh, given that the, I would imagine the predominant uh, part of your industry is west of the Mississippi. Is that a fair characterization? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I, it's probably a fair assessment, but it's certainly not the rule. Uh, what's really interesting, taking a more strategic look back at the elk industry in general, you see pockets of genetics. I mean, a lot of people deal with folks that are nearby. You see them at state or regional meetings. You know, we see a lot of people, you know, you get in the industry, you have a mentor, they're probably somebody nearby, somebody that might help you when you're doing a big hurl test or, you know, maybe an animal's sick or you have an injury or something like that. So we see a lot of regional genetic work, but Gosh, gosh, there are a lot of great ranches that are east of Mississippi. Uh, some of our best elk have, you know, we can tell stories from the 1990s, but we're east of the uh, east of Mississippi. In general, probably most people assume, oh, well, the elk industry thrives in the Mountain West. Mm -hmm. and, and that is certainly a lot of validity to that. We have great ranches. Uh, a lot, we have very active members in Idaho, Colorado, Utah, places where you can't legally raise whitetail deer. Right. Uh, Texas is an emerging market where we've seen a lot of interest grow in the American South lately. Uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, huge in the elk industry. Again, not a huge white-tailed deer or other cervid species presence. A little bit in the 1990s, but uh, we're definitely, uh, we're, we're very blessed to have great ranges all across the continental map. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I want to get into some regulatory stuff. I hate talking about regulatory stuff, but it, it, it just, it just is right. It's it's part of uh, it's part of the business. I know that there's always issues that exist um, from a disease standpoint and how um, these these farms interact with agencies within the government and rules and such. Um, you want to highlight a, a couple of those things and and then we'll maybe dig down into into a few of them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know this is a, a thing. Like you said, it's a necessary conversation. You know, I opened the discussion earlier saying that NEBA is a community of people that share a passion, and that's true. And for that alone, we believe the North American Outreach Association serves a great, great service to our members. But we would also say that if not the number one reason to join, uh, certainly the second, is that NEBA is an advocacy organization. It's something that is a big passion for me. Uh, I'm a contract lobbyist by profession. I've been in politics my entire career. It's what I do every day. But I'm a, I am come from an elk industry background. My grandparents started the first elk ranch in 1985 in the state of Kansas. And since then, my parents uh, uh, maintained uh, the herd of the animals. I've certainly been involved, not to the degree today that I was, you know, maybe when I was in college or something like that. But 
when we start talking about elk industry regulations, we look at it from the point of view, first of all, I'm a person that lives and breathes regulations, laws, statutes every day, but then how does this impact the elk industry? How do we get that to a place where we find that balance, that striking that right balance where the regulations are in place to make sure that our animals are healthy and that ranchers are protected, but not prohibited from being uh, involved in a very good business environment. And that's where I think in general, we have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of regulators that that care about the industry, that generally want to see the elk and deer industry succeed. But we certainly see a lot of regulatory hurdles where we, we just have a lot of work to do. And NEPA's engaged in that uh, throughout the year, every year. We're winning some battles, we're losing some battles, but we're there. And we're there because we have a dedicated membership base that understands that. We don't expect our members, Josh, to want to go to the Capitol every day. We get that. People have their own jobs. They might do this full-time. They might do this part-time. But if we can provide the resources there, the relationships, uh, the tools to be successful and make that regulatory environment better, then we're happy to do it. Um, do you find, uh, since you have some some background with us, do you find that um, there are, <clears throat> I don't want to say, no, I'll say it, but I don't, I'm not necessarily using the right framing, but like, do you think riding the coattails of what the predominantly larger animal industries in the United States have done is a, 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 a route to go? And I'll, I'll just use cattle because there's so many stinking cattle in this country that mm-hmm. like, they have a lot of weight, you know, they carry a big stick, so to speak. And the diseases that we're talking about that create this regulation are are very similar right so like is there are we are we trying to rewrite the playbook or like what's your thoughts on that yeah well you know we have to have there's always strength in numbers and we've we had a dime for every time we heard one of our members say the cattle industry would not you know do this well you know there's a lot more voices there's a lot more representation and we had the opportunity as a small alternative livestock industry the ability to engage the process but we just have to be very efficient at what we do. We have to make good arguments. We can't go to regulator and say, you're putting me out of business and just complain. We have to bring solutions. Mm-hmm. We recognize that, you know, I personally believe we're at a turning point in the chronic wasting disease management saga. And what that answer is, we're, we're working within our elk industry to determine that, how that looks for the elk side. But we have to bring those options forward. We just can't complain. And at the end of the day, this is a relationship business. We're working with folks that, that regulate us, and we need to make sure that we're uh, advocating it in, in a professional manner. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, you, you said the three-letter word, so we'll just dive into CWD. Um, and you mentioned a turning point. What, is, what are you seeing on your end that you're that – I, I sense optimism, right, which is great. Um, what, is, what does that look like for the elk industry? You know, it's it's a question that we're, like I said, Josh, we're trying to answer that right now. We do recognize that sitting here in 2023, we've had about two and a half decades of a management program for chronic waste disease. There is a lot of things we don't know yet, but we have learned quite a bit. Uh, first and foremost, I do believe our ranchers would tell us, the elk industry, that that the program requirements right now are more draconian than the risk of chronic waste disease infection itself. USDA is telling us that 99 and a half percent 
of all the unrolled elk and deer ranches across the United States are not infected with chronic wasting disease. Yet, what we're talking about impacting less than a half percent of the industry is what we talk about more often than not. We have a conversation with anybody with in our industry, uh, you know, and it's not because you've been infected; it's because you're worried about the program. And so, we recognize there is optimism that we're seeing regulators, both at the federal and the state level, recognize, hey, uh, we can count on our fingers how many times we've seen a positive elk herd in the United States. And since the federal rule program has came out, we recognize that uh, we might need to reevaluate what we're doing. We recognize that there are some optimism with the advancement of CW genetics, with the advancement of live testing. How does that play into it? We're still determining, but uh, we do believe we're at the cusp of some changes here. Yeah, that's great. I know the, um, I know the, at least with my interactions with uh, USDA, which are relatively limited, they, uh, they, they seem to be turning more towards um, science-based approach, or at least recognizing that science does exist and continues to develop towards these, these solutions, right? Because like, you and I can both agree that testing is not the answer. Right. That's that's simply a, a data point. Right. And and I'm 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 relatively optimistic, at least on the white tail side, that um, we're going to make progress on the, the disease itself and that regulations will generally loosen up as that comes. And, you know, we, we shouldn't let up on that gas. Um, so, well, I, I'm not optimistic, Josh, we're ever going to convince the wildlife special interest groups that may not believe our industry should exist that that chronic wasting disease isn't a problem. I think they genuinely care uh, about, I know they care about the health of the free ranging herds, uh, but the reality is chronic wasting disease has now been found in the free ranging herds, almost coast to coast across the United States. Many of those jurisdictions do not have an elk and elk deer industry at all. Uh, some of the ones that, that do have been closed for 25 years. And then we find some states where the disease uh, has been identified in the wild, and they do a little bit more testing. They recognize that, oh, wow, it's been here for a decade, and it's pretty at a pretty high prevalence rate. So either disease is moving around a lot faster outside of our industry than people realize, or it's been there for a lot longer than people realize undetected, which maybe alleges that the free-ranging surveillance programs are not sufficient. So either way, it all goes into that larger question of what we do from here. Yeah, no, that's those are, those are obviously... Uh... Uh, good points. What other, uh, and I don't want to, I'm, I don't want to harp on CWD because you, you, you know, as well as I do, we could talk about CWD for, for a long time. Uh, what other kind of uh, disease, um, you know, diseases and disease regulation does the elk industry have to, to deal with? I would imagine um, brucellosis and TB are probably something as well. Yeah, it's another good question. You know, we're, we're proud to say that the servant industry has very, been very united on tuberculosis reform. The United States Animal Health Association uh, has approved resolutions encouraging the extension of TB hard testing intervals from three to five years. The TB new rule is supposed to be coming out from the USDA here, I think this year. This is 2023 on record, but we'll see. Hopefully that change is in there. The advancement of the blood test has been outstanding to provide less uh, herd handling for our producers in a safer environment for us and the animals themselves. Brucellosis, we're really excited, Josh, about some of the advancements that we've seen, particularly 
uh, for the elk industry in states a little bit more dominated by the elk industry. The elk industry, as I mentioned, uh, really blasting off in the 1990s predates the USDA uh, brucellosis herd certification program. So you take a step and look back in comparison to our friends in the white-tailed deer industry, far, far less elk herds are enrolled in that brucellosis program compared to the white-tailed deer program. That means that in order to move interstate, the elk industry has just tested animals before they move interstate. So you can move five bulls from Kansas to Texas. You tested those five bulls and you went about your daily life. They're still in the TB herd certification program, but they just never went to the expense and the time to engage in the brucellosis program where we see it's almost more common to be in both if you're on the white-tailed deer side. Not necessarily the rule, but what we do seem to be prominent. In 2017, when the A-States Animal Health Association agreed that if the animals are outside of Yellowstone, they just don't see the risk, given all the testing that's taken place the last 20 years, that they recommend states not test for that to move interstate. NEBA has been very excited to work with our industry partners to advocate states one by one to drop that brucellosis program. Now, there's not a federal brucellosis program. There's a federal certification program, but there's not a federal rule. So that makes it a state issue. So we went to Colorado, South Dakota, Texas, you know, Utah, Idaho, uh, all these different states and said, hey, this is what all the state veterinarians are saying. Uh, can we go ahead and remove this requirement? Because that means we don't have to bring the elk in, usually for interstate movement for trophy season into August, hot time, hard antler, they're bugling, they're getting ready, you know, for the rut and bring them in the chute, test them for brucellosis. That's just an expense and handling that we don't need. And if the veterinarians say the science is there and we're safe to do it, then let's go ahead and do that. So we've been spending a lot of our time lately, Josh, on that effort. We're pretty happy so far with the results. Thanks in part to great partners at the state level. Yeah, that's encouraging. I, I always like to I always like to hear that there's less regulatory capture available um, to these these ranches because it 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 provides for better commerce. Better commerce is good for everyone, including the state. Maybe the states are recognizing that. They're like, okay, low animal health risk, and then all the benefits that come with that, right? And that's that's awesome to hear. Um, do you think that do you think that that obviously you're pursuing that further in other states? Do you think that train will just continue to roll, so to speak? It's certainly been easier uh, to say, hey, here's all the states have done it. Uh, we had a couple state veterinarians that were racing to be first. And then that third and fourth one, we just noticed it started to get easier. Like, oh, hey, by the way, you know, all these states nearby, you've all dropped it. You know, you're on record or your predecessor was saying this is a good idea. Can we go ahead and make that change? We've not seen much opposition to it. It is just a timely process doing that concurrently in all these different states. So, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. I want to I want to just dive into something on a, a personal professional note with yourself. You mentioned that you're a professional uh, lobbyist. What uh, did I characterize that right? You are a uh, sure, sure. Okay. So what what is it that like when you when you're going in and you're you're trying to advocate for the elk industry? What are the types of things? Uh, how does that take place? Like what is what is the process look like? Because I think I think it's probably misunderstood by by many of what that looks like or how it's done. You know, people. We, we talked, you, you had mentioned, you know, like people just being angry and upset about something and say, hey, we shouldn't do that or whatever that is. But like, that's not the real process that goes on. 
can you talk about kind of maybe not your day to day, but like generally speaking, what, what it is that you do? Yeah, so we're big believers in the ability to be properly represented uh, in, in a state capital. And I do most of my work here in Kansas and a little bit in Missouri, but, you know, it's the same story in whatever state, you know, we reside in, Josh, and we get back to the examples about the cattle industry or, or the pork industry. They're well represented under their respective capital dome. So, you know, we did, we're, we're big advocates that every state organization needs to be active in their capital. That doesn't necessarily mean that the producers need to be there every day. You know, maybe there's a deer day or an elk day at the capital where they can come there and showcase uh, maybe some of their animals with a few different exhibits, uh, go around and say hello to their legislator. But in general, you know, part of what my day is, if I represent a client, is what is taking place in that capital industry that could affect them. It's my job to read every bill that gets introduced in our state legislature. Can this impact my client in any way? If it is, then we might need to engage in that process. And, you know, in the elk and deer industry in Kansas, uh, we've got a pretty great setup here. We have a lot of great common sense regulators. In some states, there are two, three to 20 different legislative bills introduced in that state capital that year that could impact the elk or the deer industry. So it is something where the ability to be organized at the state level, have a lobbyist on retainer, keep an eye, have the relationships with committee members and legislative leadership to be able to accurately say, hey, there is a real consequence to this legislation here. And it might look you know, uh, common or just a lot of different details. But when you start to apply that in the real world where it could be unfunded mandates or unnecessary testing or something else that's just outlandish compared to how other states handle it, we need to be able to convey that in a professional manner. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, I am cognizant of our, our time today. Um, hopefully you'll come back and, and chat some more elk with me uh, here in the future. Um, I, I greatly appreciate the, the time today. For me, it's a I, I, I see the crossover right from from my world in the whitetail business and 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 the elk and I, I look at us as one right like they're oh, there we have so much commonality that um, we can only do good things together but I, I appreciate the time today and um, I, I hope you come back and, and join me happy to I appreciate the opportunity to chat elk as well and yeah we're always here yeah, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, with that, we'll wrap up and stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk.